today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. A lot of business at Hamilton City Hall yesterday, including uh, City Council. Well, they call it the uh, the well, the different names for it, of course, but it's really just City Councilors. Uh, the transportation master plan has uh, years in the making was finally given a thumbs up yesterday. What does that entail, and uh, how's that going to impact the streets in which you drive or bike or whatever else? Well, we'll tell you that in the second hour of the show today. But to begin with, one of the other elements uh, that uh, was discussed at great length uh, yesterday, of course, was uh, the proposal we talked about some time ago from the Carmen's Group. Uh, but there was a new wrinkle to it yesterday. The uh, The Carmen's Group made a no-strings-attached pitch to city councillors at the general issues meeting and its bid to take over the operation of the three Hamilton Entertainment facilities. Carmen's, of course, already manages the convention center. Uh, there is a consortium at play here that has its eyes, we're told, on Sir John A. Macdonald's secondary school property, which is uh, Kitty Corner 2, First Ontario Centre. So what's this all about, and why were city councillors so nervous about moving forward on this? P.J. Mercanti is the CEO of the Carbons Group, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about that. Uh, first of all, thanks for coming in. Well, thank you, Bill. It's good After to be here. After a long session yesterday, I thought you might need a day off. but uh, <laughs> I got my coffee here, my good, good Timmy's good. here. Okay. Uh, let, let's talk a little bit about what you guys are talking about, and then we'll get into the, the nuts and bolts of the meeting yesterday. I, I know that you've been on the show in the past, and, and talked about the uh, idea of, of doing other things. And uh, you've done an outstanding job at the Carmen's Group of managing the convention center and turning that story around. Uh, but the other facilities uh, are also, of course, on the table right now. Now, you were involved in the initial uh, report that was done about what might happen with First Ontario Center. So you're a player in this already. Mm -hmm. So we sent a letter to council back in February signaling our intention to to help see those uh, entertainment facilities and convention facilities maximized in their current form. But we also wanted to start the conversation about what the next generation of these facilities look like. Uh, we were participants in the arena study back in 2015 that led into 16, uh, and we're happy to do so because we saw it as be being an important community investment uh, in order to move the narrative forward with regards to that facility. Uh, we also were responding to Councillor Marula's motion back in November. That really was the the uh, foundation for a lot of what we're trying to do right now, where he, you know, he you know, put a call out to the private sector to say, you know, who out there is is willing to look at these facilities and try to maximize what can be done with these facilities. And so we're essentially responding to his call to the private mm -hmm. sector. Uh, we, you know, we believe that uh, that's uh, more could be done with those facilities, uh, and and that it could that those facilities could be leveraged uh, for you know a greater entertainment precinct precinct concept. So we're just trying to push that conversation forward, push that narrative forward. Obviously, the the uh, the presentation we made yesterday at council uh, with uh, our consortium's desire to to put some private sector dollars towards a study. Uh, of what a potential entertainment precinct would look like. Uh, it was presented before council, and obviously there was a lot of uh, commentary around that. But we're just trying to push the yardsticks forward, Bill. We're trying to, to, to make this a priority where it otherwise may not have been. And uh, and we're hopeful that that will continue to just push the yardsticks forward. Well, th and I'm going to go back to a conversation I had with Mayor Eisenberger about this a couple of months ago, I guess, uh, when he was sitting right there in that chair. And I asked about the arena. I think it was during one of his town halls, and somebody had sent an email and asked him about the future of that. And this is, of course, after yep. the, that report had come forward. And, and the mayor seemed to indicate at that time that, well, there's still some options, yada, 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 but it could take years before we come around to anything. And I had a, a real discomfort level with that because I don't want this to take years. 
Uh, on the other end of the side, I, uh, spectrum, I, I, I don't want to make a rash decision and just say, let's do this. I understand you have to explore options. But uh, with every passing year, this is a, a facility that gets more and more tired and is going to fall into disfavor and literally start to, to fall apart if you don't put the kind of money into it. So something needs to be done sooner than later. And, and I, I told him at the time, and I, I'd like to think the message is starting to resonate with some of the counselors, if you want to move quickly on this, you've got to involve the private sector because people in the private sector don't have time to drag their heels. No, for sure. And and, and, and you need to strike while the iron is hot, so to speak. You know, we, we need to do this while the market's hot, the economy's, uh, you know, booming. Uh, we're not in a recession. Uh, and, not and yet. Not yet. And so, so you know, do we want to wait till a recession before we push the yardstick forward on this? Uh, it might not be the same. Uh, there might not be the same appetite, the same temperature uh, from the private sector partners uh, then. So it's important to, 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 you know, strike while the iron is hot and uh, and make things happen, you know, when the right environment is, is at play to make it happen right well, now. And, and I don't want yeah. to create any sense of urgency that's not there. But, you know, we, we, we're using the R word here in our conversation, and I'm not, you know, we, I've talked to economists on this program, and, and we all know, and you're a businessman, you know that the economy moves in cycles, and it's been 10 years since the yep. last recession, and there are already signs of things starting to slow down. So if they, they figure, hey, you know, let's wait about 18 months until we do all this, a lot of these private sector investors may just say, yeah, you know what, I was ready two years ago, but I'm sorry, no, no deal now. And, and that happens, you know, and that happens, uh, you know, and, and if you wait too long, capital gets deployed. Capital gets redeployed to, to, to investments that may be available uh, now or, you know, reasonably, you know, reasonably soon. So this is where it's important that we, that we try to leverage this opportunity right now you know, we certainly respect and appreciate that, you know, that the approach that we took in, in writing the initial letter to council uh, and to the mayor uh, was certainly unexpected, uh, you know, and, and, and so we certainly uh, can, can appreciate uh, the mayor's uh, comment that this, you know, that we're taking a bit of a disruptive approach. Uh, certainly not wrong in that because it, it has been, we have been challenging the status quo. Uh, and in order to challenge the status quo, you need to make a little bit of noise just to get people's attention. Uh, so, so we've done that, and 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 we're at least very grateful that it is on the city agenda. You know, council did. Uh, did dedicate a significant amount of time yesterday to discussing this and figuring out the best way that we can move forward collaboratively. Uh, you know, I certainly understand that the city needs to do what it needs to do to protect its best interest and the best interest of uh, taxpayers in Hamilton and citizens of Hamilton. So, so I could certainly appreciate them wanting <clears throat> to make sure that they cross their T's and dot their I's. Um, you know, but ultimately, we do need to move reasonably quickly, even though it is an election year. That doesn't change the fact, or it shouldn't change the fact, that we still need to move forward on this file with, you know, with a reasonable at a reasonable pace. Uh, so, so we're hoping that we're hoping that that uh, you know that we can continue to move forward. Uh, city staff have been have been you know obviously. Making the fact that it was on the agenda yesterday was certainly a positive, a positive thing. So we're hopeful that we can con continue to move the yard six forward. All right, uh, let's talk about time sensitivity and protocol because those are a couple of the issues that came up here. Because uh, there's a lot of skepticism from the city councilors about this yesterday, uh, and and uh, and that's a real concern. As we said about time frame, and the best example I can give you is, is Tim Morton Field. 
uh, you know, there was money. There was federal money and, and provincial money and, of course, city money that came in from the, the Future Fund for that. But the attempt to get private sector uh, investment into that stadium project fell flat. There was not, none, not one penny of private sector money because there was an economic downturn. And people would just said, no, not doing it. Mm-hmm. So, so you got to be cognizant of that if you're going to move forward and do something on this. Now, uh, the sense I got from some of the comments from some of the counselors, PJ, yesterday was, look, uh, if you guys do this study for us, uh, that's all well and good that you want to put the money up and do this, but you're going to skewer it to make it look like you guys are going to be the best proponents for this. How do you respond to that? Well, I think that, um, that it's, you know, obviously everybody has the right to their, to their opinion, but, you know, we ultimately are willing to, to, you know, move this forward with, with private sector dollars, just with the ultimate hope that there is a process eventually around, around, uh, you know, making a precinct come to life. You know, in the absence of us uh, sticking our neck out, would that have happened? Maybe not. And so this is where, you know, we certainly understand that, uh, that, that, you know, the optics might be that we're trying to position it for, you know, for our ultimate benefit. But the reality is that, is that this will be a competitive process. Uh, others may well participate in that process and and participate aggressively. So there's no guarantees or no no uh, there's no um, slam dunk that this is going to be work out well for us. However, we recognize that the work that we're doing now will certainly and we're hopeful at, uh, regarding this certainly position us well. Come the time that a formal uh, RFP is due, uh, we're hopeful that that uh, and at the end of the day, we've learned that in business. Uh, especially, uh, you know, uh, working in the city, uh, you know, you need to earn earn deals fair and square. <clears throat> we would need to put a, the best bid in and make sure that that bid co- checks off all the boxes that the city would want to see. Um, but we're just hoping that this very process, the the meeting yesterday and the uh, the coming discussions, uh, you know, with uh, with city staff, will make something happen around a, a potential precinct uh, plan uh, and and that we that we have an opportunity to to you know make this vision come to life all right do you even know what the city wants I mean do they want to renovate these facilities do they just want somebody to manage them do they want new ones I, I I'm getting different messages from different people no, on council and 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 because there hasn't been a true collaborative discussion the answer to that question is I don't know and and, and we're, we're with you bill but but this is where we need to bring everybody into the same room or into a series of meetings where we can have that discussion and in the absence of having that discussion about what does the future look like nothing's gonna happen so so we're at least trying to try to, and we and we totally get that that the city obviously wants to control the process as they should. It's you know those are city facilities, and this is you know very much needs to be a city process. But you know the private sector, especially if there's an expectation that uh, private sector funds are going to help drive this forward, certainly needs to be to be at the table as well. And and uh, you know we've long said that the best way to move this forward is through true collaboration between the private sector and the public sector. Uh, you know we. There's been other models of how that's worked successfully in other cities, and we're certainly hopeful that that council and staff are going to embrace that concept of collaboration to ensure that that uh, both of us are heard, that we understand what's important to the city, that the city understands what's important to the private sector, uh, and that 
you know, the process isn't hijacked by any one group or party. It definitely needs to be collaborative. The city and the and, and, and the private sector need to work together. Because there's a, there's a lot of things that need to be rectified here. There's a lot of balls up in the air right now. Yep. Uh, there's there's your group, obviously. There's, uh, there's the other folks that Spectre that are managing mm-hmm. uh, the arena right now. Uh, we know Michael Andlar is a player in this too, and and not just because Michael owns a hockey team that plays there. Mike's, Michael's already said he's, he'll open up the checkbook. He wants to be a player. He'll he'll make this work. But are you going to build an arena on the mountain? Is it going to be downtown? I mean, you can't serve two masters here. You've got to have a determination as to where they want to go. And I'm not so sure even city council knows that for sure. And 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 we need and this is where we need to have you know uh, blue sky conversations about what is possible. What do the different scenarios look like? You know, we have, I have, and our group has tremendous respect for Michael, his entire team, that organization. And I think the entire city saw the pride that a successful sports franchise has for a community. When the Bulldogs won last year, or this past season, rather, it was it was tremendous for the entire city. So we see the importance of having a successful Bulldogs franchise in this city. Uh, you know, we certainly hope uh, and, and, and would like to uh, continue positive conversations with the Bulldogs organization around this and to understand better, you know, exactly what they need in order to be successful. You know, we, we respect that they have a, you know, have a, have a particular uh, vision in mind, but, you know, we would like to have a, a conversation, a collaborative conversation to see if there can be common ground on, have you talked on to that Michael? visioning exercise. Uh, in, the past few, in the past few months, there have been emails exchanged and phone calls exchanged with he and, you know, members of his team. And, uh, and, and we anticipate that in the coming weeks and months that there will be, be further conversations. And, and I think it would be helpful if, you know, if, if the city was, was also involved in, in some of these conversations, um, you know, because right now, obviously, he is a tenant of, of, of their city facilities and, 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 you know, but, but he definitely needs to be, be a part of the next generation discussion. And, and, you know, we need to explore what do different future visions look like and how can all of our hopeful visions come to realization. All right. I, I, I don't know what your time's like, but we, we got a <laughs> commercial break coming up in a couple of minutes. I got a lot more I want to talk to you about. Uh, what is your interest in the Sojourn and McDonald property? Because that came up a lot yesterday. And, and there were at first denials that no, we're not. And then somebody else said, well, I've got letter correspondence here that says there have been conversations. Why and what and who is doing that? So the Sir John A. McDonald uh, piece of yesterday's meeting was was literally pulled from the 2015-2016 arena study where there were slides uh, that circled or squared off uh, properties that were controlled by the city, properties that were not controlled by the city. And there was a, a red box around the Sir John A. property that, that essentially you know stated that there could be uh, opportunity for that specific property to be a part of a an entertainment precinct, uh, you know, convention and an entertainment precinct. Uh, so it was it was simply, I mean, that was an old document that that has been sitting, you know, in, in at City Hall for years. Uh, we just brought it back to life, you know, by showing it and sharing it yesterday. Um, but but naturally. Uh, any properties adjacent to existing entertainment facilities would be part of a potential precinct, and and so not you know obviously the f- properties around the convention center and around the arena were identified as potential sites. So it wasn't anything uh, you know directly 
about Sir John A. Other than the fact that it's just near the arena, so so by default it was almost recognized and identified as a site that has potential. It's uh, it's, yeah. it's going to be problematic because I mean we've talked with Todd White from the yeah. board, and you, as you know, they had a plan for that land, and, and sure. it was predicated on, on the provincial funding, which the province has already turned down. So I don't know what their their plan B is for that either. All right, one other thing. I, I'm, I'm sure you're aware during this long meeting that you had at council yesterday, uh, there was a lot of social media activity about uh, what you guys were doing and saying sure. and what maybe some was a speculation. Uh, one of the things that I want to address right now is that some people are saying, you know what, these are the same guys that wanted to build a casino, <laughs> and this is just a, a back doorway for them to get the land because it's already zoned, and then they're going to build a casino. Watch out for these guys. Now, I, I saw that from more than a few people on social media. Your response? So that, sh- for those that are aware of, of where the OLG process is, know that that ship has long sailed. Our plans have zero to do with uh, any casinos. Uh, Great Canadian Gaming uh, successfully won the gaming license. They've rebranded the uh, the Flamborough slots uh, as the Elements Casino. So any conversation about a casino would have to be asked of Great Canadian Gaming. Our plans have zero to do with a casino. Uh, this is strictly about how to leverage the entertainment assets of uh, the city for the greater good of Hamilton for further commercial, residential, mixed-use development and and trying to, to you know, create that next generation of entertainment and convention facility for Hamilton. You got a minute or two after this? Absolutely. All right, let me do a quick break. We'll come back in a couple of seconds because there's a lot more to talk about. This is a important stuff for the downtown core. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Talking about the uh, possibility of a uh, partnership between the city and uh, the Carmen's Group, if in fact uh, they are the successful bidders uh, for what may happen with arenas, Hamilton Place, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, there are other players here. You talked about this before, and, you, and the city, the councillors who were skeptical about this, and the mayor mentioned this, I guess, yesterday as well, that uh, that they want to have a process. And city l- rules essentially say we can't sole source this. In other words, just give it to somebody. You got to throw it out there and see who's interested. Are, are you willing to go through that process? Uh, absolutely, and and I think that we're still a ways away from that process even even happening. Uh, you know, our our obvious uh, pursuit at the present moment with regards to that next generation co- uh, conversation is simply around the idea of what could a precinct look like. And so I think that uh, the scope of work uh, is, is certainly something that needs to be explored. And, and this is where, uh, Bill, it is a very, very complex conversation because it involves, uh, at the present moment, potential lands that are not controlled by the city. So this is where it's, it's still very early days in the visioning exercise. And but in, in that visioning exercise, yeah. how grand is your plan? Because you've talked about... Other places in the country where this has happened, and I know the one that comes to mind for a lot of us is going to be the Lansdowne Park project in Ottawa. Uh, I I went to Lansdowne Park many times uh, in you know at the old Lansdowne Park, and uh, you know that's where the, the of course the the exhibition grounds are and everything else. And it was pretty tired and pretty mm-hmm. miserable. Uh, anybody who's been there in the last couple of years, it's magnificent. I mean, the stadium is there, condo development, commercial development, all over the place. It's it's a different part of the city now. It's an incredible part of the city. And I remember talking to the, the two guys that were involved in that that were really driving that project. And they essentially said, you know, the, the sense that the, the deal they made with the city was, look, you let us put this stuff in here. Give us the condo, the land, et cetera, because there was a land swap. Uh, we'll do the commercial. We'll build the, the stadium for free. Uh, forget that. We'll do that for you. 
Mm-hmm. In other words, that's a throw-in because of all the other things that have gone on, and it's worked out beautifully for the city and for the developers. Do you Are you dreaming that big? It's that same concept that we're trying to make happen here, and it's that same type of uh, collaborative partnership that will manifest of any vision to come to life. And and so while we don't have specifics of a vision nailed down simply because of the fact that, you know, the conversations still need to happen about uh, ar- arena, uh, new location, same location, arena, uh, you know, bigger, smaller. So, so a lot of big, heavy, meaty conversations still need to happen with a variety of players. So, so, but the fundamental concept and idea that an arena uh, project, convention project, uh, you know, in, in partnership with residential and commercial development taking place, that is, at, I guess, at the core of making this happen. It, it needs to definitely, you know, mimic the Lansdowne Park, uh, you know, model. And I know that uh, that similar types of exercises have happened in Los Angeles and downtown L.A., uh, for those that have been there, was was not a very uh, you know not a very um, you know luxurious place, but that development sparked a uh, a re- revitalization in that in that area. And and the and, story was back in the old days at the Forum, which was the arena they had, yep. was uh, you at ten o'clock at night after a Lakers game or an LA Kings game. Uh, if you get on public transit, you were not supposed to drive on those streets in that neighborhood late at night because right. you were taking your life into your own hands. Right. That's that's changed now. And 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 now there's a beautiful new development that has a commercial component, uh, you know, very robust commercial component, you know, residential component, hotels and other cultural amenities. They've got a Grammy museum that's near there. So you know, so I think that's that the same type of idea could happen uh, and should happen uh, in Hamilton. Um, but a lot of conversations need to happen about the specifics of what that vision could look like and would look like and, and, and specifically what pieces of property it may happen on. Um, but we're essentially hoping that through our letter uh, and uh, through our two letters that we sent to council and delegation yesterday, that the city will will move uh, aggressively in the direction of trying to make this come to life. We completely understand and respect that council and city staff, uh, you know, have their have their questions and concerns that need to be uh, remedied and, and and checked off before anything moves forward. And that's okay. That's part of the process. This is going to be a long process, but we know that we need to start somewhere in order to make things come to life. All right, back to the study for just a second, because uh, you know you said, look, we'll do this at our cost and and give this to the city for their edification and and their analysis on this. Uh, there's a lot of resistance to that yesterday from a lot of councillors, as we mentioned, because they were concerned about uh, how that report might be written and if it gives you a leg up, which, by the way, is, is illegal according to the right. municipal act. So, I mean, I understand where they're concerned about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you willing to sit back and say, okay, you guys do it and we'll just let, we'll sit down with you and read this? And in other words, step back from the report idea and still come out with a concept or an idea? Well, I think it's important that the private sector drives some elements of it. And by some, I mean, you know, just generalities on scope of work and um, and just specific principles and fundamentals, uh, you know, obviously, uh, you know, it would be important that that the public sector understands from the private sector what size sh- or what size range should a potential new convention center be. So we just need to make sure that there's, I guess, fundamental alignment on some some key areas, uh, you know, and, 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 and so I think that there needs to be some just preliminary discussions, but 
you know, knowing many of the people that are at uh, at City Hall, you know, the city staff members, very intelligent people. You know, we're hopeful and confident that that there can be a common ground in terms of direction and in terms of scope and work in some of those conversations. But I think that it will be important that it is collaborative uh, in some manner. Um, I think if it's if it's um, you know railroaded by either the public sector or the private sector, that's not necessarily productive or healthy. So I think that just good, positive dialogue uh, about what does the future look like and can we find a common ground uh, around this, I think that needs to happen. And I'm confident that it will, but we need to, it needs to be a two-way street. One of the concerns that, uh, about anybody, this is long before this thing even happened yesterday, just the fact that there was a discussion, at least, at least a preliminary discussion, about about addressing these facilities, is that uh, I, I think the city got burned in the stadium deal, obviously, for a lot of reasons, and and some of it, by the way, was self inflicted. I you know let's let's put the blame where it is. Uh, infrastructure Ontario, yes, but there were some bad decisions made by the councillors of those days. But they had no control over the construction, and which was you know mm-hmm. part of the deal at the time. And I'm concerned that they may go too far the other end here and be way too prescriptive on this, figuring, well, we're not going to let that happen again. Uh, there's got to be partnership means, give and take. And, and I'm not so sure the city, uh, the councillors especially yesterday, were, were in the, the, the mood to do much, too much in the way of giving. For sure. And, and especially if, if, you know, this next generation concept involves uh, a commercial component, residential component, if it involves... Uh, to Councillor Marula's point, trying to establish some form of a tax base, well, then, then, then I think that uh, that it needs to be, uh, you know, very collaborative uh, between the private sector and the public sector. I think it needs to, it needs, there needs to be uh, a lot of upfront dialogue early in the process because that'll make things easier down the road. So this is where the next few weeks, months. Uh, into early next year, this is where the groundwork is going to be established and laid for, you know, a successful next generation RFP or, or you know, or whatever form that takes. So, so the next little while is critical to make sure that we're all getting off on the right foot, moving in the right direction. Um, and and at, at the end of the day, the, a spirit of cooperation uh, needs to exist in order to make anything happen. Uh, and and so you know our company and our, you know our family the Carmens Group and 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 our and our you know various partners are certainly you know community minded and 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 open to figuring out what does you know this look like and and we want to have that those open transparent conversations and have that dialogue with uh, with city staff uh, with the councillors and the mayor's office uh, and others uh, so that that way we can move things forward. Uh, when it comes to situations like uh, like investment, and, and I, I know I've asked you in the past about who the members are, you consortium, and I, there's a sense of confidentiality, so I'm not going to ask you that again. I get that. But we can surmise from some of the people that maybe kicked in money for that sure. initial report a couple of years ago who they might be. But a project of, of the magnitude that you're talking about uh, is going to take a lot of outside money, aside from what you guys have got. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and we've seen that with other projects. Uh, and there are agencies, there are groups out there that are looking to invest. Uh, the Teachers Fund, of course, with a majority shoulder at, at Maple Leaf Sports Enterprises for a number of years. I think they've since got out of that, but other people have come in. Can a project like this attract that sort of international investment? It absolutely can. And 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 so, you know, we're certainly appreciative that that, you know, many of the members that are part of our group have a lot of that um, 
international expertise, so to speak, in the sense that they have deployed capital on, on you know, big deals across North America and, and around the world. Um, and so, but these types of entertainment precinct development concepts do attract the interest of developers from around the world. Uh, so if there's a compelling vision, if there's a, if there's a, a compelling vision with with you know strong um, you know business you know forecasts and financial forecasts and and respectable uh, ROIs, uh, it will attract it will attract a lot of um, a lot of interest and um, and 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 we certainly are 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 happy that our group has a lot of that international experience and 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 clout uh, and respect. Um, and so we're, you know, but this, the right type of vision can definitely attract uh, a lot of people. Uh, and, and we're talking about, as I say, pension funds. I mentioned the teacher's pension fund, but there are a lot of them out there right now that are looking for projects to invest in. Absolutely. Uh, to, uh, obviously, because it's a relatively safe investment uh, when you're getting into massive real estate deals as opposed to some of the other things, because uh, they all remember taking a hit in 2009, of course, during that mm-hmm. recession, and uh, real estate's a lot safer than, than simply living it in the bank. So I understand that that could happen. But that, again, goes back to your original point uh, about this has to happen in a timely fashion. And, and I guess that's the concern we have right now. Uh, quick email from Pat here says, This city council and mayor are notorious for kicking issues down the road instead of making decisions. I want people who are decisive and forward-thinking. I think we all do, Pat. Thanks so much for the, the thought on that as, uh, as you listen to our conversation. So where do you see this happening? How did this wind up yesterday? Uh, where is it now? And, and, and what, if any, are the next steps here? So we're, we're, I know that uh, it was uh, brought back to, to city staff to provide some feedback to council, but we're hopeful that in the coming weeks, uh, you know, perhaps into September, that, there, that the dialogue does start with City Hall around what could our, our consortium's, uh, you know, investment into this idea look like. Uh, you know, we, you know, we've, it's cer- we're certainly uh, on record saying that there's no expectation in return for any, any uh, bonus down the road. This is, this is very much a, this is very much a, um, you know, a, 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 it's not philanthropic, so to speak, but it is uh, a gift to the idea that, that uh, you know, we're, we want to invest these funds and, and, and hope that, a vision and, and a concept of a vision can be realized, but it's with city staff right now. So we're hoping that the dialogue with uh, with members uh, of of the city managers, the acting city manager's office, can happen, um, because we certainly are eager to move this forward. We certainly are are wanting to 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 have that dialogue. We know that there's an election, but we also know that that uh, that we can't press pause for too long. Uh, you know, you need to strike while the iron's hot, and and consortium partners want to see that there is an a, that there is a a political climate that is open to doing business. They want to they, they certainly want to see that that uh, you know that that a that a city hall and, and a council is united uh, from a generalities perspective. Not everybody needs to agree, but at least if if the majority the majority are are you know have bought in to the idea of of, of moving forward, then that's a good thing. Okay. Uh, the arena itself, you talked about that a little bit yesterday. Uh, and, and you've mentioned in the past when, when you were raising some speculation about even managing these facilities, uh, that uh, Scott Warren is one of your partners. We do know that. And, of course, he ran these facilities for uh, Core Entertainment, it was called mm-hmm. at that time. So that he's got the connections in the entertainment business. We get that. And so that, I, that's a comfort level, I guess. 
but the other element of this uh, is obviously you've got a junior A hockey team there. Uh, you mentioned lacrosse yesterday. Uh, people may forget the Toronto Rock, of course, sure. in the NL. In the, actually played in Hamilton, first of all, and then transferred to Toronto. So there's a market for that. Uh, you're talking about pursuing franchises and things of this nature. There's always going to be the discussion, well, are these guys going after the NHL? I mean, uh, how, how big do you dream here? I, I, I think it'd be foolish to do so, but I want to get your thoughts on no, that. No, so NHL is not part and has not been part of the conversations, uh, at least thus far. Uh, you know, we we certainly know that that road has been gone down uh, many many times, and and obviously uh, unsuccessfully for for Hamilton. So our intention is not to to go down that road. Um, our intention is simply to realize the the, the you know the, the best and maximize the, these facilities in their current form and start to plan the next generation. Uh, you know, as as great as NHL you know would be, it's just not part of our plans right now. It's not even in the the wheelhouse of of, of conversations um, that we have. Um, but we, you know, if 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 all if all of this um, visioning can play out, and there is eventually a new um, entertainment precinct in Hamilton minus NHL, I think that that's still a tremendous win for Hamilton. And, 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 and we, certainly, we certainly hope just to see that come to life because we know that uh, a reinvigorated uh, sport and entertainment district in Hamilton um, will, be, you know, will be tremendous for the city, needed for the city, and, and you know, we don't need NHL to make that happen. There are going to be critics, and I'm sure you heard from some of them, uh, if not on social media, even at the meeting yesterday, that, look, okay, this is an arena. We have bigger priorities. There's infrastructure falling apart. We need to do this sort of thing. Uh, you've just been talking around the, the case here of, of this as an economic uh, driver, uh, not just a, an arena where, where hockey players can go. That You're talking about a much bigger uh, revitalization, I guess, is, is probably the more apt word here for downtown. Absolutely. And, you know, when you look at the impact that these types of facilities have on a downtown and on a city at large, it's tremendous. When Garth Brooks had five shows in Hamilton, every hotel was full, every restaurant was filled, there was action all across the city. Uh, the CCMAs are going to be here in a few weeks, and, and no doubt the same type of <clears throat> energy and excitement will be in, in taking place in Hamilton. Obviously, when the Junos were here a few years ago, there was that same type of economic uplift uh, that was uh, in the neighborhood of, and I, I, it was in between the $10 million range, uh, you know, give or take a few, a few dollars. And so, so this is, these facilities are tremendous uh, generators uh, of economic benefit to the community, um, but also tremendous drivers of cultural benefit to the community. Uh, you know, I, a community uh, that is thriving will have uh, the right type of entertainment and different types of entertainment for its citizens. And ultimately, when when citizens congregate to those venues, they are going to be stopping into the restaurants before and after to, to have a meal, have a drink. They are, if they're going to be in town for a few days, they will be visiting the art galleries and the other types of galleries that are in town. So so robust convention facilities, robust entertainment facilities have a tremendous spin-off effect, not just in a downtown core, but across the city. I can certainly attest that our hotel on the mountain, our Sea Hotel property when Garth Brooks was in town, it was sold out every night of the week. So, so, so we've seen and you know the benefit of when a downtown is busy. 
Uh, obviously, with the CCMAs coming up, you know, we were, we're going to be sold out at our hotel on the mountain. So we're excited about that. So there is a tremendous economic benefit and a pride benefit. You know, there is, there's community pride when these facilities are, are, are you know, robust with activity. Uh, and when the rest of Canada is looking at Hamilton, like they will be when the CCMAs are here, it's exciting for, for everything. I think every Hamiltonian takes pride when the rest of the country is is looking at us. Nothing's going to happen until after the election in October. You know that. Do you have a comfort <clears throat> level with that? Uh, fundamentally, we do. However, we're hopeful that at least some dialogue with City Hall will, will happen before that. We re- respect and understand that decisions may not necessarily be made until after the election, but so long as the process starts as soon as reasonably possible, um, because we know that you know, days turn into weeks, weeks turn into months. Uh, time can fly by in a, in, in a snap of a finger and a blink. So we realize that it's important to at least have a positive, forward-moving cadence to 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 these conversations, and and that uh, that the earlier the dialogue starts, the better it is. Uh, and we know that there's always emergencies that hijack, uh, you know, agendas and time. Uh, and so we at least want to put this on the radar where it's a robust enough piece that it's a priority for. Uh, the existing staff, and for the new uh, the new council that uh, will be elected. There has to be a process, and uh, it's the sooner they get started on the process. I, I know some councillors just wanted to hang their hats on the Wow, there's a process. We all know that. But uh, just talking about it, it's not going to get anything done. Uh, it sounds exciting, and it sounds fascinating. And I know there may be other players out there that may have get plans just as grand as this. Well, who knows? But mm-hmm. unless you run it up the flagpole, nobody's going to recognize it. Great to have you in here today. Thank you, Thanks Bill. so much for Appreciate this. P.J. Mercanti, the CEO of Carmen's Group. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario has told its members at its annual meeting yesterday that they denounce Doug Ford's vow to revert back to the 1998 sex ed curriculum. They are referred to the move as irresponsible, and they say they will defend any teacher who sticks to the 2015 curriculum. Message was uh, delivered by ETFO President Sam Hammond. Uh, this is only one element of what's turning out to be a very confusing situation. Uh, obviously, because there are some teachers and a number of public health officials that uh, have talked about this and said this was a wrong-headed idea, but it's been announced by the government nonetheless. Uh, and uh, boards right across the province, I guess, are getting somewhat confused. On Monday, the union representing publicly funded English Catholic schools posted a memo on its website telling its 45,000 members to teach the curriculum directed by their school board administration. Also, members of the Ontario English Catholic Teachers Association are being advised to never meet privately with students to answer questions relating to sex ed. Uh, Deputy Premier Christine Elliott had suggested that's what teachers could do if students had some inquiries about the program, but uh, the uh, Catholic Teachers Union says these types of private discussions with students could result in investigations by police and children's aid societies, and the Ontario College of Teachers could lead to criminal charges. So they're not just suggesting, they're saying don't do it. School's only a couple of weeks away. How do boards handle what's going on here? It seems to be a very cloudy situation right now. To talk about this, uh, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Manny Figuardo, who is the Director of Education at the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board. Uh, Manny, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Thank you, Bill. Thanks for having me back. Well, uh, to dispel the myth that uh, that people in the school board just sit around in July and August and do nothing, I know that you guys are, are going crazy right now getting geared up for this, but how do you handle what's going on uh, when you get a directive from the government about changing 
uh, curriculum this uh, this soon before the school year. That in itself has to be somewhat problematic, I would think. Yeah, Bill, it, it is a bit problematic for school boards across the province. And our board, as you know, uh, had a had a special board meeting this this summer and um, had a bit of a debate and discussion around the, the this change in curriculum. And our board is writing a letter to the you know Minister of Education, Lisa Thompson, indicating their concern uh, about changing the curriculum. So, um, as a board of trustees, they're trying to influence the ministry and state their concern. From a staff perspective, we're still waiting from uh, uh, from a clear direction from the ministry. We haven't, other than what we've read in the paper and what we're reading in the media, we haven't received a clear memo from the Ministry of Education that outlines this. But our staff behind the scenes is already uh, working on both case scenarios, just so we're prepared, because we know at the end of the day we want our, our staff to be ready to, to be supported so our students aren't impacted. I, I mean, this is from a, a logistical standpoint, Manny, not just as easy as, uh, as you know, going into the basement and, and dusting off those 2014 uh, you know, uh, course outlines and saying, okay, we're going to use these now. Uh, th- there's a lot more to this, obviously. There, there is, and... Um, uh, see, when I was speaking to the Board of Trustees, the Ed Act clearly identified that the ministry uh, can prescribe courses, and they have, and they, and, 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 they, and they can. We have to then ensure that when curriculum is rolled out, the teachers have the right resource for this curriculum, because you said it's more than just looking at the document. What are the resources and tools available to this? And one of the challenges this presents um, to staff is, we also have an equity and inclusive education strategy in the province. We have a human rights code that we must follow, and it's very clear that we want all students to feel safe, accepted, and supported. So students from different gender identity, different family structures, the LBGTQ, um, all these uh, are topics that were in the health phys ed curriculum um, that if, if teachers are struggling whether they should be able to teach it or not, we still have to ensure that the kids are feeling safe and supported. And we know the best way to make people, students feel safe, except supported, is to educate people. And how we educate people in our system is, is through um, the curriculum. But, we, but many of those topics we do address, um, Bill, especially around the physical development, is not until the spring. So we have a bit more time. And, and our practice is always to send a letter home to our parents to let them know what topics will be, t- will be being taught in their grade, so parents, if they do have any concerns, can reach out to the school, and a few of them, if they choose to uh, want to be exempted from those topics, have that right. So we still have some time there. Uh, our concern as, as the staff is that it is three weeks away, and uh, not having that clear direction um, doesn't allow us uh, to be in the best ready stance as we possibly can, and that we're hoping uh, to hear any day now. Uh, through the Ministry of Education. But you said that one of the things that you have to balance here, Manny, and you've talked about this in, on our show in the past, uh, is, is obviously human rights legislation and, and, and those parameters. Uh, you know what the old curriculum is like that the government is, is suggesting, I guess it's more than suggesting, it's demanding now that uh, the boards are going to use. Uh, are those two documents at cross-purposes now? Um, there'd be gaps, if I can um, okay. that way. There would be gaps. So we know the topics in the new curriculum we were teaching around consent, sexting, safe online communication, uh, physical development, um, um, sexual health, and and different family structures. Those clearly aligned to the Ontario Human Rights Code. Um, So if there are gaps in that curriculum, 
if we do resort back to 98 curriculum, a teacher and educator might not be teaching or assessing, but they need to be prepared to address uh, those from our from the human rights code and from the equity strategy. So that creates a bit of a of a challenge for educators, but we're going to ensure that they have supports and resources, not necessarily to teach it, but to be prepared to engage in conversations. And as you said, once it crosses an area of expertise, we have to ensure then we have the right supports in place through our social work department, our psychological service department, to, to help students, and even of our, some of our partners who can help. Uh, because we, we, we know we can't expect our teachers and educators to be experts in, in all areas. So we have to make sure we have our our physical resources and our, and our human resources available uh, as these topics uh, arrive and, and students are not compromised. Is there a concern, Manny, and this is right in the classroom now, uh, that in, in an attempt to fill in those those gaps, as you suggested, uh, that the teachers may be concerned about about stepping over a line here? Uh, you know, In other words, I, I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about this now. I mean, is that, that, that doubt in their minds is going to create, I would think, some consternation. There is, and I've been speaking to educators through the summer who are looking for that clarity uh, because that that doubt, they, they worry. They worry. We're the employer and saying, am I following uh, the clear expectations of my of my employer? So we're going to have to work with our, um, our, our federations. We're going to have to work closely with our educators, and we're going to have to communicate, as we know, communicate as much and provide as much support. Um, but there is a worry for some educators uh, out there, and I've heard that worry. Well, and it's because of the I guess the philosophical reason why this is going on, and I'm I'm not going to drag you into the politics of this, Manny. Because that's 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 Queens Park stuff. That's not going on to the board office. I understand that, but uh, you got to live with this, and and that seems to be the problem. And it seems to me. Uh, from the comments the premier has made on this, that the reason they wanted to 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 nix this the program that's been taught for the last number of years is because of certain things they did not want taught, and that's putting an added burden, I would think, on teachers to say, well, how am I supposed to make that determination? You know, if if in a dialogue in in a classroom if something comes up, are they supposed to cut off the conversation? Are they allowed to go down that road? They they really don't know at this stage, and that's and that's the challenge. Uh, so you know, always open and transparent. As, you know, there are some groups too who who might be supporting this direction um, from the from the ministry and maybe don't want these topics. And we heard from those groups when the new curriculum was rolled out. Yeah. But we but we committed to have information sessions across the district, and we also brought the facts because there's a lot of myths out there about what would be taught and what wouldn't be taught. And then we allowed and respect that parents at the end of the day are going to have to make those. Um, individual choices. And, and a few parents have made those choices when certain topics are being presented to exempt their child. And we respect that. Um, but you're right. that The challenge becomes now is that educators need that clarity, want that um, clear understanding of what can be taught. And, and the most important part of it as an educator is that caring adult. Um, conversations happen in the classrooms, in the hallways, interactions happen, and we're human beings, and relationships is, is what we're all about. So that interaction still happens, whether it's part of the curriculum or not, and teachers need a bit more clarity of, of you know, where's that line or where the supports in case this happens, and we are going back to the old curriculum, what's the support the board is going to have for me and resources so I can direct uh, children or families to the right places, or how far can I have this conversation so uh, I, I'm not crossing a line. But at the end of the day, what educators are worried about, they want to make sure that they're not leaving a student hanging or leaving a student compromised to make sure that they're feeling safe. And that's, I can feel that 
attention with our educators. This is almost like changing cars at 60 miles an hour. I mean, I mean, because the, cur- the curriculum has been in place for some time. Some of the students that are going to be involved in, in this uh, have already been, you know, taught that curriculum. Uh, it, it, I, I'm wondering if the are they supposed to tell them, hey, unlearn what you've learned now. We're going to do this instead. That's, that's a very difficult thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. And I, um, and, and that's uh, anytime, I mean, curriculum revisions occur. I know the ministry is committed to the review, but you're right. There are, there are topics that have been taught uh, for students who then might be progressing to another grade who might feel that they want to engage in conversations they've already had as, a, you know, as, as part of their learning that uh, teachers might not be able to do. So it does create a bit of, um, a bit of confusion. Uh, but at the end of the day, we, uh, our worry as staff is that to make sure that the, we don't leave any student vulnerable any student feeling that they're not accepted or, or, or wanted in our schools. Because at the end of the day, every, every child has a right to be there. And the curriculum, as I hear from many educators, is a reflection of what conversations students are having uh, in the community. So we, um, and that's why so many educators are very passionate about continuing this curriculum. Again, we need to get that direction, and we hope that direction comes sooner so then we can communicate some clarity with the resources to our teachers. We both use the phrase in this conversation, Manny, about crossing a line. Uh, if, in fact, that line is crossed, I mean, do teachers, and, and for that matter, you and the administrative side, have any idea, uh, w- first of all, where that line is and what those ramifications might be? I mean, is somebody going to get uh, suspended now for teaching something that's not in the curriculum? I mean, how severe can, can the punitive measures be in situations like this? Or do you know? Well, you raise a good point in terms of crossing the line. Right now, all directors of education, school boards are looking to understand what that line may be once we get the communication. And once we get the communication, then we can provide some clarity. But in, in, um, if someone's well-intended and is there to support the child and we provide the resources, um, um, we're going to have to be flexible um, as we support teachers through this transition, because it is a transition. And it's no different than when, you know, when the 2015 curriculum was rolling out, there was a transitional period there as well in terms of people's comfort level. Um, so we're going to have to, our stance right now is to be one of a support and to help educators get clarity, um, not one of, of being punitive, especially when there might be some ambiguity out there. Well, but I mean, you know, just to de- develop a hypothetical situation, you talked about one of those gaps, and, and, and one of them is a discussion about, about same-sex families, uh, which is in the current curriculum. It's not going to be in the old one that they're going to start using again. I mean, if a teacher gets engaged in a conversation about that or somebody asks a question about that, is, you know, is Mr. Kelly going to get, uh, you know, ratted out and say, hey, he talked about, say, that's not in the curriculum. You shouldn't be talking about same-sex families in the classroom. Uh, you, you know, the teachers, I, I, I say, when you create doubt like that, you have to wonder just where can you take a conversation. Yeah, and that's the clarity that we don't have right now uh, as well, and we're looking for that clarity to ministry. I think that's, once we get the memo, uh, we're looking forward to engaging in, in conversation. And we have to be aware as well that there are um, uh, the curriculum documents are there for what teachers you know must teach, assess, and evaluate. And then also there are many conversations, like I said, that happen in schools, in hallways, in classrooms, in gymnasiums, and in, in, um, on stages uh, in terms of relationships teachers have. And students do share their experiences. Right? They share their personal experiences. They share their personal family experiences. Um, they share their their gender identity. And teachers uh, have always been professional to listen, to respond, and make sure that, they, that these students feel welcome, safe, and accepted, and supported, um, and not excluded. 
and that's one thing we're going to hold tightly to is uh, that, that these kids need to feel supported. I got to ask you about the uh, the directive that the uh, the Catholic uh, schools posted here. Uh, warning teachers about the idea of having one-on-one meetings with students if they have any questions uh, related to sex ed classes. Uh, the uh, the insinuation uh, for the, the memo that was sent out to the Catholic teachers is uh, these types of private discussions with students could result in investigations by police, the Children's Aid Society, the Ontario College of Teachers, and could lead to criminal charges or the loss of, of a teacher certificate. Uh, are you going to be having that same discussion with uh, with your members and with your teachers? Yeah, I- so let me. I've been asked this question before. I won't speak on behalf of the of, of OACTA, but no, I, it's, I understand I, it's a different yeah, set of rules. Yeah. But, but notwithstanding, but I, they seem to be saying that anybody has that sort of conversation. The insinuation but, is that you could be brought up on charges. What do I know as a former classroom teacher? I know as a teacher that you have many discussions, whole whole classroom discussions, small group discussions, and sometimes one to one discussions, uh, even instructing students who need help. What my message will, uh, messaging will be as students, as teachers still have a care for the students and sometimes just have one-to-one discussions with students. If the discussion uh, becomes a point where they need support or beyond their expertise, we do have support for teachers from our social work department, our, our, our psych services department, and some of our partners. Um, and again, we'll get more clarity once we know exactly what can be taught and what can't be taught. But I would never discourage a teacher uh, to listen one-to-one to a child who might be asking for help. Because you've been in the classroom, and, and I know that and there are some great teachers that do exactly what you did, and, and that's uh, have those discussions and, and, and share your knowledge and your expertise and your life experience. I mean, that's part of what teaching is, it's not just you know reciting stuff from a curriculum. I understand that, but... You know, if, if some child or student were to come up to one of the teachers and start questioning things about gender identity, I, I'd hate the teacher's responsibility would say, well, look, I'm not allowed to talk about that. That's got to be frustrating for the teacher and certainly frustrating for the student that has those questions. Yeah, our, our, my expectation would be that, like most educators, will sit and listen. And if a child's um, um, sharing some personal feelings um, and if a child might need some support, that the educator then would turn... Um, to the principal, turn to the resources that we have to make sure that child is feeling supported. Because uh, at the end of the day, uh, the child reaching out to any educator in a school one-to-one, uh, many times they're asking for some support and help, and we need to we have the legal responsibility to respond to that. One of the reasons that there was such a move back in 2015, obviously, to do this revision of the curriculum uh, was simply the fact that a lot of these things that people think are taboo subjects right now, students are talking about anyway, or they're exposed to them on the Internet. Uh, and so they do have questions, and obviously that can lead to misinformation. Uh, uh, that's pretty obvious because uh, many of the adults that seem to be complaining about this, I think, are based on misinformation as well. But uh, are you concerned and frustrated as, as an administrator now that this, in many people's minds, seems to be a step backwards? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned in terms of the lack of clarity at this point because of um, uh, not being able to give our, edu- our educators, you know, the, the right tool and resources in a timely manner. Um, 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 my concern that this might be a step backwards. Um, my board of trustees clearly are concerned, as, as you, if they had a board meeting or sending a communication, they are, um, and many of our staff are. What, what I'm worried about is that teachers will feel uncertain of what to do and when to do it, then that will, might compromise um, a child's feeling, feeling safe or feeling, again, the response they need. That, that's 
my uh, greatest concern at, at this point. Um, and um, I'm also trying to respect that, again, I've heard from parents who've said that some of these topics they're not comfortable with. But those topics uh, we communicate ahead of time, and parents always have the right um, to withdraw their child. We want to respect that. But throughout this curriculum, our educators are not there to uh, promote any type of um, lifestyle over the, over the other. They're just there to support children to understand that there are, different, there are different gender identities, there are different family structures, and, and uh, in a diverse community, we need to respect and make sure that everyone is feeling included. And I hope that still continues. And that's uh, around, around equity and inclusivity. That, that has to be a priority regardless of where the curriculum goes. Well, uh, the uh, public sessions that uh, the government is promising on this are going to be rather interesting. We'll see how that goes. But uh, in the meantime, you've got a lot of work to do and hopefully get some directive from the, uh, the province on this in the next couple of weeks. Mandy, thank you, as always, for the time. I really appreciate the clarification. Okay, thank you, Bill, for your time. Have Take care. Day. Manny Figuardo, the Director of Education for the Hamilton Board of Education and uh, other boards, of course, having similar concerns and, uh, and challenges right now because uh, it seems to be as clear as mud as to what they're actually supposed to do here in the classroom. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.